got a bit of a question, and don't be reticent to answer. I'm actually looking for raised hands here, okay? How many of you made New Year's resolutions? Don't be shy. Anybody out there? It's okay. You can admit it. How many of you still have those New Year's resolutions? Okay, that's, that's not bad. After one week, we're still, for the most part, doing okay uh, on our New Year. I, I find when it comes to New Year's resolutions, there's typically three types of people. There's the idealist, which may be some of you that raised your hand. The overzealous person that each year in January decide to overhaul their entire lives, only to realize that that kind of fizzles out over the course of January and February. Uh, these are the people that fill workout rooms and gym rooms in January and suddenly vanish in February. <laughs> then there is what I might call the pessimist, the jaded person because they've seen so many people in their New Year's resolutions fail. More often than not, they have a lot of friends that are the idealists. And they've witnessed these things not take hold very long, and so they see them as a waste of time and, to some degree, the people who make them as foolish for having done so. Then there might be what I would call the realist, that recognize the values of goals in their life and maybe think January is a good time to set one, but aren't reticent to set a goal and to pursue it any other time of the year. It's probably obvious from what I'm saying that I would argue that the third option is probably the safest option for most of us. It's charting a path between an overzealous idealism and a pessimistic reticence and fatalism. And in that respect, New Year's resolutions are kind of similar to our text this morning. We're going to be studying the value of lovingly confronting sin in the church from Matthew chapter 18. And in that same way, this subject has these three characters. Some of you may resonate with these. You have the idealist who believes that if they try hard enough, they can suss out every sin in everyone's life and call it out, and they end up kind of adopting a witch hunter mentality, running around the church trying to find issues and calling them out. Others of us may be more inclined to the pessimist or fatalist so frustrated by the way we've seen this process work in churches or the way we've experienced the pain of it being used incorrectly that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and totally ignore this passage of Scripture. Obviously, I would argue for the realist position, a position that charts the course between these two ditches and looks to biblically, faithfully apply what Christ has called us to do in his church. Let's read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 22 together as we consider this concept. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, or two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
pray, and then we'll walk through this text together this morning. Father, we celebrate the words of what we've just sung. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Lord, what a privilege it is to know you in spite of our sin, in spite of the sins that weigh each and every one of us down, that you've given us the opportunity to know Christ through the gift of him and his blood on the cross on our behalf. And Lord, though we can see the, the depravity of our own sin, the, the way it harms the, our lives and the lives of others, um, that we can rest in the saving knowledge of Christ. Father, that's the subject of our time together this morning. That's what you've chosen to write about in your word, the reality of sin and the way we address it in the church. So as we study this in our time together this morning, I pray that you would be glorified, Lord, that we would have the courage to face the depravity of our own sin, that we would have the love to engage with one another, and Lord, that you would give the, us the wisdom to know how to do it well. Use this time together this morning for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, at this point, I expect some of you that have been here a while are probably finding yourself asking, Brad, aren't we in 1 Corinthians? To which I would say, yes, true, but before we move, as we took a break for Advent and the season of Christmas, before we move from chapter 10 into chapter 11, I thought there were some topics from 1 Corinthians that we touched on as we moved through the first 10 chapters that needed some additional context, they needed some additional instruction. You may have noticed last week was a bit of a follow-up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as Mario Mamina spoke on John 4 and the how we share the gospel based upon the precedent that we must be compelled to share the gospel with the world that we saw from 1 Corinthians 9. I appreciated Mario's willingness to preach. I found that incredibly encouraging. We had a great dialogue about that in our midweek podcast this week. I really enjoyed what he had to share, and it was especially providential because I ended up being sick last week and couldn't be here, uh, so really appreciated what Mario had to share. Next week, we're going to be circling back around to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be addressing some specific sin issues that we see there that we didn't have the time to cover as fully as we would have liked to the first time we were moving through it. But this week, this week what I want to do is I want to provide some background to what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the issue of church discipline, where there was a man who was engaged in sexual immorality with his mother-in-law, and we addressed what the church was called to do in that situation. But I found myself thinking that it's probably appropriate to consider what would have led up to that or what should have led up to that. Many of us are unfamiliar if we didn't grow up in the church with what the concept of church discipline and confronting sin means. And so I wanted to provide a little bit of background information and I wanted to study Matthew 18, that section that defines this a little bit more so that we understand how that process should have worked if the Corinthians had been doing what Christ had commanded them to do in the first place. So with that in mind, as we move into this text, I want you to consider it in light of what we read in 1 Corinthians and what the church in 1 Corinthians was failing to do. Here in Matthew chapter 18, Christ gives us the church, the task, three tasks that we must pursue as his bride. The first is we pursue the task of identifying sin humbly, identifying sin humbly. Then we are confronting sin biblically and lastly, forgiving sin completely. Identifying sin humbly, confronting sin biblically, and forgiving sin completely. We'll walk through those in our text together this morning. Christ begins his instruction here with a situation we all know far too well. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you. We all 
resonate with this. This has happened to all of us. We have done this to someone else. All of us have. But here in this brief statement, I think Jesus reveals at least two truths about sin that we need to recognize. The first, sin is inevitable. Sin is inevitable in this fallen world. Now, I don't mean that we don't have the power to defeat sin through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we don't have the ability to do it. But in a community of faith, we are going to sin against one another. To understand this, I think we have to look a little bit at the broader context of Matthew here. Why is Jesus, and why is Matthew as the author of this book, bringing up this subject right now? While the subject of conflicts between believers is always relevant, I would argue it's probably because the disciples were fighting with each other at this very moment in the gospel. Let me, let me show you what I mean. In the larger section, chapters 16 through 18, we see that Jesus is teaching and focusing on what success in the kingdom of God looks like, what success and faithfulness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. He includes things like self-denial, faith, a proactive trust in God, humility, holiness, forgiveness. We're going to talk more about that here in a minute. And he includes some interesting details here. Look back a little bit in your Bible to chapter 16. In chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, Peter confesses Christ as the Messiah for the first time in Matthew's gospel. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter identifies Jesus for who he is for the first time in this gospel. And that's a pivotal moment in the gospel because from that moment on, Jesus begins foretelling of his death on the cross and the trajectory of the book of Matthew heads towards the cross in the final week of Jesus' life. And we see that in verses verses 21 through basically 28 as we begin moving that direction. And then there's an interesting thing that occurs in chapter 17, and I want us to note this. This is why I'm taking the time here. Because there's two events that occur in chapter 17. Most of us are probably familiar with verses 1 through um, 13 that talk about the transfiguration. Jesus goes to his disciples. He says, these three disciples, I want you to go up on the mountain with me, and he reveals himself in his glory, right? We're familiar with the story, right? And they're amazed, Peter says, let's build some tents and we're going to make this all work. You know, they have this incredible mountaintop experience. But have you ever found yourself asking, okay, so what's going on with the other nine disciples? While these three disciples are up on the top being Jesus' special disciples and having this experience, what are the other nine disciples doing? Well, verses 14 through 20 explains that they were down at the foot of the mountain trying to heal a man whose son had epileptic seizures and suffered terribly. And they were failing at it miserably. They were failing at this task. Jesus comes back down the mountain with these three disciples. He looks at them and he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. He goes on and says, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you had the faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, Move here or there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. So put yourselves in the mind of the disciples. Three of them get specially selected to go up on top of the mountain with Jesus and to see Jesus in all his glory. The other nine are stuck at the bottom of the mountain, failing to, to, to heal this boy. What's going to happen when those two groups of people come back together? We see in chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, the disciples come to Jesus, and their question is not unlike us. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Now, why do you think the disciples are wondering this? Well, three of them just had this amazing experience on the mountaintop with Jesus, and nine of them just failed to solve the problem at the base of the mountain. I realize I'm reading a bit between the lines here, but I believe there's a fairly good chance the disciples were fighting over their superiority. Presumably, they were offending and sinning against each other because they were always fighting about who was the greatest among the 12 of them. And we know this experience as well, don't we? We engage in this sort of behavior regularly as well. We sin against each other and we are sinned against by others in our fights for superiority, in our fights for our opinions, the exact sort of things that were taking place in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we offend each other and we hurt each other. As long as we live in a fallen world, we have our sin natures and we will sin against each other at times. But in addition to this inevitable conflict and sin that will take place in the church and in God's people, Jesus clearly also presumes that sin here is identifiable. Notice what he says. He says, if your brother sins against you, assuming that you can call out the sin and you know what the sin is, what is Jesus talking about? What are we to confront? I think what we see as we move through, and we'll talk about this as we go through the different sections, we're talking about obvious, significant, biblically clear sins. Sins and offenses that we can go to the text of Scripture and we can say, it says don't lie, you lied to me, and you offended me and hurt me in that way. And it's not arrogance to identify these sins. Matthew has already reinforced that concept in a previous teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Turn to the left in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Here we read what is somewhat a familiar passage to us, and we reference this in 1 Corinthians 5, but I want to go back to it and talk about it briefly here. In Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5, Jesus says this, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is reinforcing here that middle ground that we're shooting for. That to avoid addressing the speck in your brother's eye is wrong, but to avoid addressing the log in your own eye first is wrong as well. It's not arrogance to identify sin as sin, but we must do so humbly. We must do so with appropriate humility, recognizing that we struggle with the same sins. But again, we're charting a course of faithfulness between these two extremes. Baby out with the bathwater, forget it altogether, and idealism, we're going to do it perfectly. It's also clear, I think, from this verse that what we see is we're not talking about simple disagreements here. We're not talking about the things that we disagree about all the time. We're talking about obvious, significant, biblically clear sins here. But the principle at play is this. We must seek to humbly identify the inevitable sins in our church community. We must seek to humbly identify the inevitable sins in our church community, in our own lives, and in our brothers and sisters when they offend us. And that way, it's somewhat similar to raising kids, for those of you that have had that experience. When you have your first kid, there's an idealism, right? I won't parent like those people. I won't do this. My kids won't fight that way. You have two or three, and you learn how foolish that line of thinking is. On the other hand, failing to correctly identify sins and misbehaviors in the lives of your children 
isn't loving either. And we all recognize that. But we tend to go to the two extremes. Let me give you some example of what this might look like in application in your life. This means that we must get better at both giving confrontation and receiving it. We must learn to humbly call out sin in each other's lives and graciously receive it. This is hard stuff. This is not easy. But this is precisely what the Corinthian church was failing to do, why the issue blew up to the level it did in 1 Corinthians 5, where the man had to be put out of the church. Because people weren't engaging in this sort of activity. They weren't humbly speaking. Remember, he calls them out for being proud. He says, there's this man in your church, and you're arrogant. He calls them out for not humbly speaking the truth to each other, but he also recognizes that we need to graciously receive criticism. We all, if I were to ask each other, are you perfect? None of us say, oh yeah, I'm perfect. I'm that one person in the church who happens to be perfect. But the minute someone notices our imperfections, it gets a little harder, doesn't it? We start to struggle. Because I'm okay identifying my own imperfections, but if somebody else notices something, that destroys the facade that I try to keep up in church. So we have to learn to humbly give this sort of sin. And we're going to talk about how we do that here in a minute. But also we have to be prepared to graciously receive it. Even if it's not done perfectly. And as a church, we need to recognize that we shouldn't be surprised by the presence of sin in our church. We aspire to be the holy bride that we're going to talk about in our class over here on ecclesiology. But we realize that until Christ comes, we're not perfect. And we are a fallen group of people living in a fallen world as a fallen community, and we're going to struggle with sin. We should not be surprised when it happens, when we hurt other people and when we are hurt by other people. But much of this that we talked about here is what we talked about in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Assuming we've clearly identified someone that has sinned against us, what the sin is, what do we do? How do we approach it practically? He goes on. Jesus goes on here. We see this in verse 15 through 20. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. This is where it gets hard. Right? We recognize what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 5, but what are the steps that Christ gave us that Paul has in mind as he writes those words about how we confront sin biblically? There's two things we have to note here. There's two presuppositions you kind of have to adopt in order to do this faithfully. The first is you have to recognize that the church has the responsibility to confront sin. The church has the responsibility to confront sin. That's why Jesus lays this out. And he lays it out in the course of three steps. Let's walk through these steps of how we're supposed to confront sin. First, he starts off with individual confrontation. We saw that in verse 15. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The first step, when we've identified a sin, when we've been offended, we go and we talk to that person one-on-one. -on -one. Now, there's three things I want to note about this confrontation that I think Jesus is noting here. First, the confrontation is clear. 
It's biblically clear. He says, go and tell him his fault. Recognize what that issue is, identify it, and find the scripture that says that's wrong. Too often we speak in sort of vague generalities. Well, you kind of made me feel this way and that way, and that doesn't help us. What we need to do is we need to say, this was the occurrence, specifically, this is the verse that violates, and this is the course toward restoration and reconciliation. That helps our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Jesus has in mind here. This confrontation is clear. But secondarily, this confrontation is private. Did you know what he said? Between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. This confrontation is private. You take your brother or sister aside. You say, this is clearly what I see. Let's talk about it, just the two of us. Let's address this just the two of us. It means not sharing with others, but keeping it to yourself until you've talked to that person privately. And I recognize that this runs entirely contrary to everything our world tells us to do. Because your world, the world out there will tell you, you've been offended, go post something online, and when they see it, they'll feel guilty enough, they'll come and talk to you. Now what Jesus says, he says, go and talk to your brother in private. Lastly, it's clear, it's private, it's restorative. Look at the last part of the verse. He says, between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal is restoration. The goal is a healthy relationship. It's not seeking some sort of venting. It's not seeking to punish them and make them feel bad. It's seeking to see them restored to relationship with you. Again, this goes against the post something on Twitter so that you feel better. That is point. So we confront individually. We do it clearly, we do it privately, and we do it with the hope and the prayer of restoration in the relationship. To which the natural question the disciples were probably asking, and I'm sure you are too, well, hold on a second, Brad. What if they don't listen to me? Verse 16. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we move from individual confrontation, this is our step number one, to team confrontation. I'm going to take one or two people with me, and there's a few things that I want us to note about this, the way he describes this as well. First of all, this confrontation is objective. You're seeking objectivity. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Why do you need one or two others? Because you need some objective help in seeing the situation for what it is. Now, it begs the question whether or not these people that he's talking about are people that have witnessed the offense or people that are there to witness the confrontation. It likely depends on how you interpret an earlier section dealing with if your brother sins against you. There's somewhat debate about whether that phrase should be included against you. But I think contextually, probably most likely what's going on here is you're looking for people that can be objective, that can see things clearly, to come along and evaluate the confrontation and say, are we seeing this clearly? Am I in mistake in what I'm calling out? Are they in mistake in the way they're responding? Because regardless of which way you look at that, those extra people bring a weight and an objectivity to the conversation. You're not looking to grab the people that are going to agree with you. You're looking to bring two or three godly, wise people who will be able to tell the two of you if you're seeing things clearly. Because the goal is restorative again. 
The goal is to see the relationship restored. So you're not looking to bring along allies. You're not looking to bring along people that will agree with you. You're looking to bring in some objective third-party people that you trust their wisdom and biblical guidance. But in addition to being objective and restorative, you also notice that this is selective. It's a small group. It's as small of a group as possible. You start by just talking with the two of you, and then you expand it, but you only expand it as far as you need, one or two additional people. Not a whole horde, not your whole small group, not everybody you could think of. You keep the group as small as you can, and you're selective about who you bring. Lastly, I want to note here that this confrontation is verifiable. That's an interesting word to choose, I know, but he says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three. Seeking for there to be clarity on the way the confrontation happened and on what the sin was. There should be a verifiable nature to this confrontation, to this sin that's being identified in our brothers or sisters. Again, the question begs, what if they still won't listen? What if they still don't respond? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Step one, individual confrontation. Step two, team confrontation. Step three, if those two fail, and we're hoping they don't, and that we never get to this step, church confrontation. This is what was taking place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, it's reached this level, you need to put this man out of the church. He's not listening. The goal, we talked about when we talked about 1 Corinthians, the goal there is to see him realize the error of his ways, the depravity of his behavior, and come back to the church. But this is step three, and it is described as both corporate and redemptive here. This step, this last-ditch effort to get the attention of the individual that we're struggling with must include the whole church. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, to the ecclesia, the gathering of those that are the called-out ones in the hope that it will be redemptive, right? Treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Reach him with the truth of the gospel. Because it's reached this level, he's refused to repent. That means his life is inconsistent with the gospel he preaches. And you are scared for the condition of his soul. Because by nature, believers are repenting people. Because we're not perfect people. All of us should be consistently repenting of sin in our lives and seeking to turn, acknowledge it, and turn back to Christ. So for us, consistently, this should be happening. If none of us are perfect, and sin is everywhere in the world, we should be consistently looking to see this happen. Encouraging each other with the truth of the gospel, saying this is a part of your life that isn't consistent with the gospel you preach. Come back. Come back. Step one individual confrontation, if that fails, and we're hoping and praying it doesn't, step two, team confrontation. If that fails, and we're hoping and praying it doesn't, step three. And note at least three things about this process. It's intended to be as clear and objective as possible. It's intended to be as private as possible. And it's intended to be as restorative as possible. This is the way we address sin in the church. 
This is God's plan for addressing sin in the church. Any other way is futility. God has given us a plan. Any other way is an exercise in futility. And at this point, I expect many of you are probably feeling, Brad, that sounds great. But isn't that a bit presumptuous? I would never presume that I could do that or that I'm qualified to do that. And it would seem that the disciples were feeling the exact same way because Jesus reassures them in verses 18 through 20, and this is our second presupposition. The church has the responsibility to confront sin, but Jesus says the church has the authority to confront sin, verses 18 through 20. We'll walk through what we mean here, but let me read it. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three, or if two agree on earth about anything I ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. There's three things, and we don't have time to go into this in as much depth as I would like to. But he talks about binding and loosing here. Now, this isn't the first time he's brought this up. He talked about this back in chapter 16 when Peter first confessed Jesus as the Christ. He talked about binding and loosing language. I'd encourage you to check out that passage this afternoon. But what's going on here in the terminology, and it gets a little bit confusing, but what he's speaking to in this situation is not directing or dictating to God what's going to happen. This language of binding and loosing is the idea of faithfully teaching what God has taught, declaring on earth what God has revealed, declaring on earth the truth of the gospel, that which saves and that which doesn't save, and saying, this is what God has taught the gospel is, this is what God has taught faithfulness looks like, so that people here will understand what is bound and what is loosed. Secondly, he talks about agreeing and asking, and again, Certain people will take this and they will twist it and they will make it sound like we can get whatever we want out of God. That's not his point. Remember, the context is when we're sinning against each other. He talks about agreeing and asking. He's not talking about manipulating God. He's talking about affirming God's judgment, where two or three of us come together on an issue and we say it's biblically clear, it's very straightforward, that sin is inconsistent with the gospel, this is what God has said. We agree on the truth of God's word, exactly what Bruce was praying about early in their service. And then lastly, he speaks of gathering and abiding in verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, when the church is gathered together, there I am among them. It doesn't matter how small that group is. Christ's promised presence among his gathered church. To help in situations exactly like this. Christ affirms the church's authority. Now, understand what I am not saying here is that this passage is affirming the church's infallibility. There is no one man at the top of the church that is infallible, and there is no one group of people that is infallible in their judgments. But they are right insofar as they agree with what the Word teaches. And if that is true, and we have both the responsibility and the authority to confront sin we must confront sin the way the Bible commands us to. We must do it. It's a command. It's not an optional idea for those that are super Christians. It's something we have been called to do. Not doing it is kind of like ordering something off of the Ikea catalog and then throwing away the instructions the minute you get it. 
Which if any of you have ever done that, it's a really bad idea. I have a degree in construction management, and that's a really bad idea. Because the engineer that designed the thing had a way it was supposed to go together. And you're just foolish if you think you can do it on your own. Or kids, my oldest son loves Legos. If you've ever got a Lego set and set about building it, thank you for that. <laughs> Who was that? I'm, I'm so proud of you. Everybody listen to him. <laughs> Amen. Okay. But have you ever gotten a Lego set and you throw away the instructions the minute you get it? No, that would be ridiculous. Because without knowing how everything fits together, you're probably not going to build it correctly. You'll end up with all these leftover pieces that will end up on the floor and your parents will step on in the middle of the night. <laughs> Confronting sin without the plans that God has given us to confront sin in the church is exactly like that. It's like saying, ah, I don't really need these instructions. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to just wing it. I'm sure it'll turn out all right. As individual believers in the church, we must learn the necessity to follow these steps that God has given us when confronting each other. We must learn this individual, humble, loving, biblical confrontation. And when it doesn't succeed, this team confrontation of looking for two or three wise people that you can bring along with you to address the issue, and if that doesn't work, to tell it to the church. God has given us a blueprint here, and he's asked us to be faithful, and he said, this will be edifying to the church. And we look at it sometimes, and we say, I don't think God knew what he was talking about. I'm going to do things my own way. And as a side point as well, this is useful for all sorts of other confrontation as well. In your business, in your family, in your school, I mean, whatever the case might be. This idea of talking to the individual first before addressing it with anyone else will save whatever organization you're a part of a tremendous amount of heartache. Because God knows what he's talking about. However, I do have to say that if if you're an unbeliever, if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Christ, you're probably listening to this message this morning, and you might be finding yourself asking, like, what is wrong with these people? That sounds so uncomfortable. That would be really awkward. And in that respect, you'd be right. It is awkward. It doesn't get easier. Except, we as believers recognize that the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin and rebellion against God is death. The harmful effects of sin in this world are everywhere, and we love each other too much to ignore the destruction of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a matter of arrogance. It's not because we're just weird masochists who love uncomfortable conversations, but it's because we care enough about our brothers and sisters that we're willing to have an uncomfortable conversation because God's grace is enough to cover that. And that's the part we want to wrap up with here this morning. Because we're tempted to stop at this part of the text. But Matthew clearly links this text that we're talking about with the section that follows. And so I don't really like the ESV's, the parable of the unforgiving servant, break in between verses 20 and 21. Because look at what Peter asks. He says, Then Peter came up to him and said... Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? Notice how similar that is to Jesus' original words in 15, if your brother sins against you. 
Peter asked what is entirely a natural question. How often am I supposed to forgive my brother for sinning against me? And we learn two truths about forgiveness. First, forgiveness is, must be frequent. We are called to frequently forgive. When Peter asks this perfectly natural question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And I love it. You can almost like see Peter asking this question, as many as seven times? Like, surely that's extravagant. I mean, two or three maybe if I'm feeling really magnanimous that day, but not seven times, right, Christ? Thinking he's going to get brownie points with Jesus for saying seven times, right? Kids, it's kind of like when your mom asks you to forgive your little brother again and again, and they keep doing the same thing, and you're like, oh, okay. You know what I'm talking about? No, none of you know what I'm talking about. You're all way more, way more sanctified than my kids. <laughs> right? Then we are. We do the same thing. Peter was an adult. He goes, as many as seven times, Lord? Surely that's overboard. Jesus offers a supernatural response here. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And for those of you that know a little bit about the way Jesus would have said this, it's seven times seven, it's this completed number. What he's not saying is you should be marking up on a little tally, one, two, three, four, se- 77, that's it. What he's saying is, as often as is necessary. Because to keep record of that would defy the whole concept of forgiveness, And it's probably going to take more than 77 times of forgiveness with our brothers and sisters. I love Luke's gospel and how he describes this in Luke chapter 17. Flip to the right briefly in your Bibles. I love the way Luke puts this in Luke 17 verses 3 and 4. He records this same sort of interaction and he says it very, very bluntly. And I'm just a fan of that. Luke 17, 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Straightforward enough? And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. We are called by Christ to forgive as often as is necessary. Now, what Matthew is not saying, what Luke is not saying, what Jesus is not saying is that there aren't situations that involve preventing that person from doing that harm again. There are situations where you must remove yourself from the situation, where you must distance yourself from the person because of harm that could be done. We're admitting that. But none of that changes the prerogative to forgive. None of that changes Jesus' words that as believers, we are called to forgiveness. We are called to forgive frequently, but then Jesus says, let me explain a little bit about what that will look like, and he offers a parable, and I didn't want to read this at the beginning because I wanted the weight of Jesus' story in verses 23 through 35 to fall on us the way it would have the disciples. Let me read Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35, and just hear the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master offered him or, or ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the saved servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. He's talking about how we confront sin. He's talking about how we forgive sin. We forgive sin frequently, as frequently as necessary, and we forgive sin fully. Notice the comparison here of the king and the servant. The debt that the servant had was enormous. The debt that the servant had to the other servant was very small by comparison. The confrontation of the master of the threat to do exactly what the law would have commanded to do. The servant responds with physical abuse and choking the man. Even though their pleas are exactly the same. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Exactly what the servant says to him. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But the response is what Jesus is highlighting. The king with his massive debt responds with mercy. The servant who had been shown mercy responds with none. We are called to forgive completely from the heart. Look at verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The story perfectly punctuates exactly what Jesus is talking about here. We must forgive sin the way we have been forgiven sin. It is easy to look at our brothers and sisters and say, they hurt me. True enough. But the offense that they owe us is pittance in comparison to the offense we have been forgiven by Christ. And when we recognize that, we realize that we must forgive sin the way we have been forgiven of sin. I love the way Mark Dever puts this. He says, you cannot hold a grudge and the cross. You must give one up. Sin is inevitable among people that are fallen. But you cannot hold on to your grudge and the cross of Jesus Christ. Because those two things are in total contradiction to one another. So we practice this art of frequent, full, forgetful forgiveness. 
and do it today. Every single one of us has been hurt by other people. Every single one of us has hurt other people. Don't leave it alone. If we declare the message of forgiveness through the mercy of Christ on the cross, we must embrace that reality practically for one another as well. And again, I speak, if you are an unbeliever, that this idea of free grace from God means or it doesn't make any sense to you. Let me just encourage you that if you feel a weight of your own sin, of your rebellion against God, and you don't know what it would look like for someone like God to forgive you this massive debt, don't leave today without talking to someone about that. As believers, we are a people who have been forgiven a massive debt, who had no hope of holiness with a holy God apart from the saving work of Christ. So we throw ourselves at the feet of the cross and ask Jesus to do what only he can do. Don't leave today without knowing what it feels like to have that massive debt. You have been charged, relieved. What's the point? What are we getting at here? Why did I think we need to circle back around to 1 Corinthians, or from 1 Corinthians 5 to Matthew 18 to provide some context here? This is the background of 1 Corinthians 5. This is the point that I think we need to embrace as we head into another year as a church. God's grace in our lives calls us to confront sin biblically and forgive sin completely. That is our calling as believers. That is the command of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the ways he intends to edify and equip and encourage his church. Imagine what could happen in our church over the course of the next year if we embraced this sort of loving confrontation and forgiveness. Imagine if we all took the time to humbly identify the sins in our lives and the lives of others. What God could do. Imagine what God could do if we were all willing to confront sins and offenses the way the Bible commands us to rather than the way the world does. Imagine what God could do if we all viewed the offenses of others in light of the overwhelming grace we have received from God through Christ and began forgiving the way we have been forgiven. Imagine what God could do in us and imagine what God could do through us. I don't know if you've made a New Year's resolution. It would seem from the hands that not many of you have but this would be a pretty good one to commit to today. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this offends our human sensibilities. This runs totally affront to our hyper-individualized idea of autonomy as believers. As Americans in the 21st century where we don't need other people's help and we don't want their input in the way we live. But Father, you have surrounded us with a group of people who love you and by the power of your grace, love us. We pray that we would exemplify that love through a willingness to see sin for what it is, to confront it biblically, and to forgive it completely. Make us a people that conforms our lives to what your word teaches. Help us to do it faithfully. Help us to do it wisely. Help us to do it the way Christ commanded us to. In his name, amen.